Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. Earlier this year, I had the chance to sit down with Amar Kampa-Najjar. At the time, he had just barely lost in the midterm election to replace Duncan Hunter in California's 50th congressional district. Hunter was under indictment for misuse of campaign funds. Well, on December 4th, Hunter pleaded guilty to these charges, and it appears he will be exchanging the halls of Washington for the halls of prison. Amar is running again to fill the seat the Hunter family has held for more than 40 years. His story is a uniquely American one, and I know he'll inspire you as much as he inspires me. My name is Amar Kampanajar. I'm a Latino Arab American running in the Trump era. Sorry, not sorry. spent the past year volunteering your labor, your love, your life, your days, your nights, everything and anything that you possibly can to flip this district. And when I say together we can, I don't just mean together the hundred of us or the Democrats or the progressives. I mean together as in the 750,000 of us who call this district home. Every single one of us. I think we can expand the doors of opportunity long enough and wide enough for every single person of this district, regardless of who you voted for in 2016, so all of us could walk through. And I believe that means paving a path towards a unified, fortified, progressive future together. So the last time I saw you, mm-hmm. I campaigned for you, you did. in San Diego. It was fantastic. And the first time I met you, I was at a dinner. Also in San Diego. Also in San Diego. Why mm-hmm. was I there? Oh, I, I took a border trip That's right. with the Vera Institute. We mm-hmm. went to the to the border, um, the California border, and to see uh, with my own eyes uh, what was happening there. Mm-hmm. And I had met you at dinner, and then... Um, I don't know. There's something about you that I think is very sparkly. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. I'll take that in the nicest regard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, go easy. I mean, you're, you know, sparkly, but still a little rough around the edge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which right. is good. Right. I don't want you to lose that. Right. Um, but I think the thing that I was most struck about was how uh, you knew what you needed to do. Mm-hmm. And the thing that was most disappointing, not mm-hmm. only um, with the outcome of your election, but also uh, campaigning for mm-hmm. you, was that even though you knew what you needed to do and you did it, it still was not enough. Right. So I want to start this conversation um, sort of now, and then we'll go backwards, mm-hmm. okay? So 
where are you now? Are you going to run again? I'm running again. As long as I'm walking, I'm running. I'm not giving up on this district. I uh, came close, got 48.3% in this ruby red district. Uh, to put it in perspective, Beto O'Rourke got 48.3% in Texas, and now he's running for president. God bless him. But I'm just running for Congress again because I really believe in this district. I think uh, part of what happened is you know this family has been known for 40 years. They've been voting for the same name, Duncan Hunter, and trust takes time. Tell me a little bit about Duncan Hunter. Yeah, there's a lot to say about him, and I'll just preface everything I'm about to say with sorry, not sorry. Perfect. Um, <laughs> but uh, Congressman Duncan Hunter has been the congressman of our district for the past 10 years. His father held that seat 30 years before him, so about half a century of one name. He uh, was criminally indicted in August uh, for um, spending a quarter of a million dollars of campaign funds on personal use, like flying trips to Rome. A Republican congressman and his wife are accused of spending $250,000 in campaign funds on themselves and falsifying their financial records. California Representative Duncan Hunter and Margaret Hunter were indicted yesterday, charged with describing vacation trips and dental work as campaign-related. Duncan Hunter was one of the first members of Congress to grand in campaign funds for their personal expenses, including trips to Italy, school tuition payments, and even theater tickets. Hunter was the second person in Congress to officially endorse the president, right behind Congressman Chris Collins, who, of course, was charged earlier this month with insider trading. And think about this. Yeah, we're excited about going to trial with, with this, frankly. Now the congressman again calling the charges against him politically motivated. It's me they're after anyway. They're not after my wife. They're, they want to take me down. That's, that's what they're up to. Um, so let's get this in the arena and, and have it settled. Congressman Duncan Hunter is defying the wake of as charges. the couple filed their taxes jointly. Now, we are not saying that Michael Cohn is some kind of heroic figure here, but compared to Duncan Hunter, he sure looks like spouse of the year. She handled my finances throughout my entire military career, and that continued on when I got into Congress. Whatever she did, on that, that'll, be, uh, that'll be looked at, too, I'm sure. But, uh, but I didn't do it. <laughs> Damn, dude. Criminally indicted, uh, charged, or criminally indicted, not charged just yet. Um, for and he's holding a seat in Congress. Mm-hmm. He just won Congress. an election mm-hmm. and it, during the midterms. And he's not alone. Chris Collins is there, too. Both of them have been stripped of their committee assignments, so they can't really do anything. And they were stripped not by Nancy Pelosi, but by Speaker Paul Ryan when the Republicans controlled the House. So the people that know him the most trust him the least. But in our district, it took a while to build that trust. He launched a disgusting campaign against me, attacking me on my heritage. Uh, He put his wife under the bus, blamed his wife, said that she was the one who made those illegal expenditures. So he's blaming everybody but himself. Talk about a guy who doesn't believe in taking personal responsibility. I thought that was a hallmark of being a Republican or fiscal responsibility or the rule of law. None of these things apply to this man. And the people gave him a free pass. I think it was because he was innocent until proven guilty. And because of this cloud of not trusting the Justice Department, thanks to our president, that I think gave him the sympathy support he needed to get just across the finish line. And keep in mind, he won by 27% uh, two years before I ran against him. So we made some inroads, but I think now that we're in 2018, uh, we're going to, or 2019, <laughs> we're yeah. going to finish stronger by starting stronger. And the way we're going to do that is out campaigning, out raising him, and trying to put people over politics. 
Racist and un-American, that's how a new political ad released by Congressman Duncan Hunter is being labeled by his opponent. The ad targets Democrat Amar Kampanajar, who is vying for Hunter's seat in the House of Representatives. And 10 News reporter John Horn is live in the newsroom now. John, you spoke to Kampanajar after he saw this ad. Yeah, he told me that he certainly expected to be hit on the issues when he decided to run for Congress, but he didn't expect this. Now, this ad calls Amar Kampanajar a threat to national security that Americans can't ignore, and it says he's being backed by the Muslim Brotherhood. Can you describe a little bit uh, what it takes emotionally to, to campaign? Yeah. Like um, in a really human way. Like let's yeah. let's break this down for I people. I mean, you and I have, we've talked and you've, you've heard my frustration and the angst and um, it's hard because, you know, you're trying to do the right thing. I was born in this district. I, I will die in this district. Um, these people are my community. You know, my dad, when he left when I was a kid, I had pastors and bosses and teachers who stepped in for me, and they fought for me my whole life, and I want to so badly fight for them. And to be rejected because of these false smears from a congressman who's on the ropes was really painful. Um, being attacked for being called a terrorist. When I got a security clearance to work at the White House, when we had a president, President Obama, who was a great president, who used to read, and you know, employed logic and decency. So it, it was really heartbreaking on so many levels. And, um, but I just, you know, my mom, she raised me right. She taught me that you don't quit on the people you love. And my mom raised me through being broke and brokenhearted and um, worked different jobs to put me through life. And I just could not, you know, forsake that inheritance that people have invested in me, my mom, my community, and just turn my back as things got hard. So uh, did you think you were, you were going to win? Yeah. I mean, we had polling that had me winning at 10 percent. And it was a pollster who did polling for me since the beginning. He had me at 18 percent in the primary. I got 18 percent. Everybody had me at 10 percent. He had me tied when the indictment happened in August. So the DCCC and the DCCC was all on board. Even, you know, there were some folks in the leadership, Nancy Pelosi and others were like, we're going to get to call your election the day of the election, unlike other races in California. So all of us were really bullish. And you could probably feel the energy on the ground. Yes, I could. And we were just completely shocked that we just didn't get there. But here's the good news. Everywhere that we went, we won. Every area that I went to and my campaign went to, we won. We won places that Hillary lost by a landslide. Really? Yeah. And so that tells me that we just need to go to more places and build trust over time. Well, that's kind of what Stacey Abrams did, right? right. She went house to house in places that people had never, Democrats had never visited before right, right. and sat down at the kitchen table and right. said, tell me your concerns, tell right. me what you need. And I think we need to get back to that we do. place, right? We do. That human, con by the way, not just in politics, Everywhere. in life, mm -hmm. human contact. Mm -hmm. um, is it, do you think going to be different going into 2020? I do. And my whole thing is like, you know, he's going to go low. So is Trump. And my whole thing is when they go low, we go local, right? Going back to pressing the flesh and talking to people and meeting them where they are, talking to them about what keeps them up at night and gets them going in the morning. Not the personal petty politics, but people's personal health. Healthcare was a big issue that we ran on in 2018, and we, we took back the house on that issue. Mm -hmm. People's personal safety, whether you're an American or an aspiring American who's being caged at the border, and your personal financial dignity. Um, 
I think those are going to be the pressing issues. And it's not about uh, the Democratic Party. You've heard me say this before. We're not just the opposition party to Trump. We have existed before him. We'll exist after him. We can't just be the opposition party. We have to be the opportunity party and have a bold vision, an alternative narrative to the one that that Trump and Hunter have been peddling. So I'm pretty bullish. I think we had record number of Democrats voting in 2018. I think we're going to shatter that number in 2020. And that might be the extra 1.3% I need to carry me through. But I don't want to just flip my seat to keep control of the House. I want us to take back the Senate, to take back the White House, and undo the damage that this president has done in two years. And then finish the unfinished work that we still have ahead of us, that even if we didn't have this president, we had so much yet to be done. So I think this is going to be a... A, a an election that will be everyone says it the most important election of our lifetime every single one every of them single, is every single every single election this one is folks <laughs> this one is folks and if only one in five eligible millennials vote we're going to keep getting what we got people need to get off their duffs and get out there and vote like their lives depend on it because it does we're going to be on the receiving end my generation of climate change and soul crushing debt and an education system that won't lead to good paying jobs not because of immigration but because of automation And unless we try to recapture the American dream and make sure middle-class families and people are are treated equally, we're going to be facing the American nightmare, which is my generation being worse off than our parents, which has never happened in American history. But there's a moment, it's called a where were you moment, where people are going to look back and say, where were you when people were fighting for their lives and their health care and their constitutional rights? And I want to say that we all stood shoulder to shoulder and squared our shoulders to those who were opposing equality for everyone, whether it's income inequality, gender inequality, racial inequality. And I think this is the year, this is the cycle where we finally get back that country that we love and lost in 2016. Now, the reason we're all running here today, I think, and the reason we're all here today is because we really know that this is the where were you moment in the life of our country. People are going to look back and they're going to ask every single one of us, where were you when people were literally fighting for their lives? and their constitutional rights and their health care. And I want to say that we squared our shoulders and we stepped up and we stepped in and we took on Donald Trump and we led with our values in 2018. What do you think about that? What's the biggest issue in your district specifically? It's a competitive selection. I mean, right now, I think I've been going to VFWs and union halls and asking people, how many of you, for the first time, were in California, um, did not get a refund, ended up paying more and taxes for the first time, and they all raised their hands. Trump supporters, they're like, he left us behind. There was a story that came out just uh, today where uh, the survivors, uh, Gold Star families, um, who are the survivors of servicemen and women who died, uh, are being taxed more on their benefits because of this draconian tax plan that was rushed, and now is hurting Hunter's own base. And so when I hear people talk to me about the fact that I am not getting out of this government what I'm putting into it, uh, when they're saying that we're still not being able to, to get health care, people are splitting their pills to get by rationing. It's disgusting. Yeah. It's disgusting. And, and then the fact that in my district, you know, Trump talks about this booming economy, but for who, right? The people who have stock, people who look at GDP, but what about the real economy where in my district, the unemployment rate is double the rest of the countries, right? People have to commute an hour away. That's two hours every day away from their families, and they can't afford child care. So the day-to-day issues, and then on top of that, you have this commander-in-chief who's using these weapons of mass distraction, this so-called crisis of national security at the border, and taking away funding from our military 
defund a border that no one thinks a wall that anyone thinks we need. And he so, wants to bring our military, more military, to the border. Right, and it, it the the com, the the commandant of the Marines said that this would hurt our military readiness, our combat readiness to protect us. So, it's just a. It's just a sad it's time. It's bone crushing. Yeah, it's bone crushing. And I try, I try really hard to to be, to look at both sides of it. But yeah. I have such a hard time, um, you know. And we, and we, we, when we first started this podcast, a lot of it was like we were going to try to bridge the divide, not in a way where it, it is at the expense of the oppressed, right? right. Because I'm always going to fight for the oppressed, but in a way that everybody feels like they have a voice mm-hmm. but it's really hard it's really hard to stay neutral in a time where i feel like the uh the backbone of this country mm-hmm. is being conned right by not only a man but by an entire political party right and now that's not just there are some you know great republicans mm-hmm. Um, and I, there are many in my family that I still love and talk to and everything's fine. Um, but you know, it is a very hard time to find the balance. And if I'm having a hard time finding that, how are we going to move past this as a nation and find some sort of common ground and unity when even those most open to it are still having a hard time? Yeah, that's a good question. And I wrestle with it every day in the district and, I could give you anecdote after anecdote um, about how we do that and how we've successfully done it, but you have to find common ground. Otherwise, you're just ceding the ground to Trump. But you can't find common ground and then not stand your ground. You have to do both at the same time. It is backbreaking, soul-crushing, exhausting work, but the reward at the end of it is worth it. And I've seen it work. I've talked to people across this district and across the country as I travel to do events and fundraisers, and there is an appetite. People are really, they're exhausted. They don't remember the last time we've had to pay attention to the actions of a president every single day. We used to just wait. Hourly. Yeah, hourly. hourly. Tweet by tweet. It used to just be he was at the Olympics or met like a state. <laughs> he threw out the uh, yeah. first pitch. There you go. He met a, you know, a, a, a leader of a different country. That's it. He met the, the Photo Pope. Follow up. Done. Yeah. Now it's every single day. I know. What would we do with all that time on our hands if he's out of the office? Right. We go back to our own lives and have a government that works for us. I actually had an interesting question from a therapist, (sighs) my therapist. And she said to me, you have to make sure that you don't want him to fail because it's just giving you a passion and something to do every day. your life, yeah. And... It made me sort of think about like, okay, how much of this is just an obsessive, um, compulsive sort of behavior and where we're like just hoping that he's going to fail to prove everything right um, or is or how much of this are, are legitimate concerns. And I think, I think we all get caught up, especially on social media, mm-hmm. in this world of like when he sends out a tweet, and something's misspelled, it's not about the, the context of the tweet, which is often horrible. Right. It's about the misspelling of the word. Right. We've, we've become obsessed with this man, and that's what he wants. And I think a lot of us who really care about outing Trump are going to feel this postmortem depression 
because we're not going to know what to do. And I think I tell people, look, like all of us are, are working towards uh, getting Trump out of office and his agenda out of office. But picture for a moment what it's going to be like to live in a world the day after Trump's not in office. What happens then? And we what would we be doing? We have so much work. Right. Why don't we just start doing that now? Why can't we walk and chew bubble gum at the same time and, and focus on the things that we do want to fight, the unfinished work of making sure we have fully quality for everybody, regardless of your hues or your views or your religious beliefs or the gender you subscribe to or your orientation? We could start doing that now. And that's why I think what the House is doing when it comes to a whole host of issues from climate change to curbing gun violence to advancing women's equality to the infrastructure bill that they're going to be announcing soon to trying to protect the Affordable Care Act and expand it. We could do both. And it doesn't it's not just symbolic. I know it dies in the Senate, but it's going to lay the, the groundwork. It's going to be a launching pad. So when we get to 2020, we're going to hit the ground running. not just this party that's only purpose is to defend against Trump, but to uh, uh, create accountability in Washington and an opportunity for the rest of America. And that will be the work that I hope all this energy from Indivisible, the Women's March, and all that comes and stays, right? And not just, you know, we came because of Trump, but we need to stay for each other mm-hmm. because America's never been at the mercy of one man. It's been about all of us coming together and bending the arc of history, sometimes way too freaking slowly, toward justice. And that means finishing the work that we have ahead of us. And that should make, make, make us excited. And I think if we just obsess about Trump too much, we're letting him win. If you were in office right now, mm-hmm. what would be the policy that you put forth? It's not sexy. It's, it's not okay. sexy. I'm, I'm all for yeah. unsexy <clears throat> Well, a couple things. One of the things that I think is sexy is that I want to have some real uh, campaign, government, and election reform. One of the things I want to push is put it in the law. If you can't pass a budget and you have a government shutdown, members of Congress aren't going to get paid. It's not just federal workers who don't get paid for two weeks in a row or two paychecks in a row. We don't get paid either. Uh, Second, we should have the same health care and be subject to the same health care that the rest of the people are getting imposed on them. Amen. And, and, and getting rid of corporate money and, and, and politics. But also, I want to introduce this idea of, for the incoming class, not those who came uh, before, but for the new wave of, of members, and this is not popular within certain parties, term limits in the House. Um, and I'm trying to figure out the best way to do that. And I think if you're able to ascend into leadership and become a speaker, then maybe you get an extension because we need the continuity of an experienced person. You've seen mm-hmm. Nancy Pelosi do mm-hmm. great work. But then you have people in Congress who literally, they make it a career for decades and never get held accountable. So I think we need real election reform. That's the sexy thing. The not sexy thing is that there's 7 million job vacancies in this country right now. We don't have to define new job vacancies in advanced manufacturing, healthcare, construction, transportation, green tech, a whole bunch of industries. Um, 
and there's 6.2 million people looking for work. So there would still be, if you filled all those job vacancies with skilled training, vocational training, you know, college isn't for everybody. You don't have to have an Ivy League education. You don't have to, um, you know, have that fancy degree to have a middle-class life. There's a lot of good union jobs. All these jobs could, would pay around $70,000 a year, which is double what the average American makes. And if we did that, that would be $490 billion a year in our economy that would be going in, not to mention the tax revenue that would go to help you know, reduce the cost of health care and housing and education. That one thing alone, moving funding away from building the stupid wall to building up working families, would fix a lot of problems and create a lot of good-paying jobs. So if I get to Congress, right now Congress appropriates $90 million a year for apprenticeship on the job training. Mm-hmm. I want to spend a billion dollars a year and build a 21st century workforce that could um, deal with the the, uncoming, the incoming tide of automation that's going to displace a lot of jobs. But there are some good jobs out there that will pay good wages and lift up people's lives. I wish my mom had that kind of job when I was growing up. She could have not. She could have been able to afford child care so she wouldn't have to work part-time and then take care of me and my brother. This is how you lift up people's lives. So that's the unsexy thing that I would do to change this country for the better how we did not have the foresight to see this the fact that jobs were shifting mm-hmm. and the the th- thing that's been keeping me up at night are these forgotten cities throughout the country right. where there was no preparation whatsoever for these factories closing down right. what that meant for a community what that meant for a city what that meant for its people the education healthcare, every it is gut-wrenching to me how we did not put things in place to mm-hmm. protect mm-hmm. Um, the people in this country right. that w- these cities were based on a certain specific job, right? right. Like Flint is a perfect mm-hmm. example of that. You know, pa- uh, factories in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. um, you know, where 95% of, of people's income came from this one job people didn't even have to graduate high school in flint michigan they just worked for gm deindustrialization had um a a major role to play um, in a place like flint Um, the water crisis there happened because the city was running out of money it was declared to be in a state of fiscal emergency and that's why they had to divert water Um, they had to use water from the flint river instead of from you know the the lake huron or the detroit river what that, that they were using before and the reason that the city was running out of money is because industry had left. There were the manufacturing plants had closed um, due to you know the effect of globalization and cost cutting and unfair trade practices. And so you had manufacturing leave the city. They ran out of money. They couldn't maintain their public sources, their public resources. And then the Flint water crisis happens when they try to cut costs even more and save themselves money. Um, so I think the link is pretty direct, actually, between deindustrialization and something like the Flint water crisis. It's a real lack of foresight to me Mm -hmm. to um, not have seen that coming. Right. Seriously. Maybe that's why we need some millennials in Congress, right? Right. Um, And that's what I'm running on is because I know we're going to be on the receiving side of this stuff. And I I think there is a path forward. I'll give you an example. I was at the the Department of Labor when I worked there. And there was a guy who came in and he said he, he was displaced because he worked in a factory just like you're describing. And he said, look, Omar, my name's Omar. He's like, I don't know what it's like to be an immigrant. I'm not an immigrant. He said, I don't know what it's like to get affirmative action. I didn't get that either. He's like, but I worked in a factory that my father worked in until my mom started working there when he left to go fight in World War II. 
and they repurposed the factories to build the ships and planes and tanks that brought my father back. And I hated that job, but it broke down my body to build up my family. And every day I'd wash my hands, look over the, the kitchen, look at my kids and say, these are going to be my kids' hands one day. Mm. And he said, now someone like you halfway across the world is doing it for cheaper. And so there was a lot of anger there. And I'm obviously, I'm from here, but he was displacing his anger at me. And I, I understood it. it. Yeah, I get it. And I get it. I've talked to people who say, look, I don't care about immigrants being here, but I don't want to live in a country where I don't speak the language anymore one day. These are just legitimate, maybe displaced fears, uh, but they're phobias. You talked about your therapist. Phobias don't get treated with just blunt facts. Like I have a fear of flying. And if someone told me, don't worry about it. If the plane crashed, you'd die so fast. You'd probably die before it hit. That wouldn't make me feel better. <laughs> It doesn't we, make we me live feel in a that we now, live right? in a post truth world where the way you build the truth back is you build trust, and so we told this guy, look, you're not going to get your job back. That we're not going to bring back that kind of job. We're not going to sell you this lie that Trump is selling. This notion of again, which is not America. Um, what we can do is help you retool and retrain. He got this got into this program called I think from coaling to coding where he learned how to, how to code. Mm. And in two years, he came back and he said he is making more, has better benefits, is going to live longer for his kids. One of his kids was complaining about not being able to do his algebra. And his dad, this guy, slammed the book shut and said, don't ever complain to me about how hard life is. Two years ago, I didn't know how to turn on a computer and now I'm coding. Mm. So this this willingness to reinvent yourself, that's that's so core to America. You don't have to be an economist to understand that a skilled workforce is a necessity in a tech-driven economy. Training, and perhaps just as important, retraining, the workforce is likely to become a recurring challenge, sometimes an emergency. A McKinsey report forecasts 39 million to 73 million U.S. jobs could be destroyed by automation by 2030. Although about 20 million of those workers are expected to easily shift to similar occupations, that leaves millions who still need to make a living, but they need to be retrained. You can't just hop on a mechanized conveyor belt, start pushing buttons, and you certainly can't fix it without first understanding how its computers and its parts interact. That's where the challenge comes in. Politicians and business leaders typically turn to large-scale federal job training programs but critics say they are clunky. They lack specificity for individual communities. As we hurtle toward automation saturation, the approach is starting to change, though. The federal government is now stressing demand-driven training that's coordinated with local industry. The goal? Make sure workers aren't retrained with new skills that turn out to be obsolete. Instead, look for gaps. Focus on those and make workers quickly hireable. What's the issue that keeps you up at night? Um, there's so many. I don't sleep a lot. But so <laughs> I think the thing that that keeps me up uh, the most is, is this question of I, people come to me and they ask me in, in different ways is, uh, are our institutions strong enough to protect us from this reckless president? Hmm. And 
I think it's the wrong question. It's not whether the institutions are strong enough to protect us, but are we strong enough to protect them? These institutions are... But in a perfect world, yeah. we obviously wouldn't have to protect right. our institutions, right? right? But we I don't mean, live in that world. We live in a broken world, and, and America's not perfect, but it's always strived to perfection. And our goal is to bring America more in alignment towards highest values. And I know that sounds lofty, but in a concrete way, a lot of people are seeing their rights and their freedoms um, constricted. And uh, look, our founders weren't perfect at all, right? Um, but they, they enshrined this document that had more foresight than they did. And it's on us to do the work of making this happen. And I'm worried that people will become so apathetic or so divided on things that they shouldn't be divided on, whether it's immigration reform, where there's a consensus on dreamers, whether it's uh, curbing gun violence by having background checks, universal background checks. We all agree on this. I'm worried about the tribalism and if it's irreparable. And if if, Hunt, if Trump has um, made us forever cynical, and that's a real concern I have because, you know, George Washington was our first president. He chose to be a limited-term president, and he said he wanted to make sure that it wasn't one person who had power. Um, and he said in his closing farewell, he said that, you know, self-government, which is what we're doing here, right? This podcast is a form of self-government. Going out to talk to people is self-government. Being engaged, voting is self-government. He said self-government is the underpinning of our liberty, of our security, and our prosperity. And he said there are going to be people from different corners and quarters of this country, not another country, who will try to weaken in your mind the conviction of that truth and will go to great lengths to make you not believe in government. And I think people are starting to become so jaded about government um, and don't believe that America is a country that could uphold our values and that. But does this go back to the therapist question? Yeah. Does this go back to being addicted to this feeling of mm. despair and cynicism? Right. It's like we all, you know, I try to I try to think about all of this in a real sort of grounded human way. Mm. I had a friend in my 20s that was like the dark cloud. Everything was negative that yeah. came out of her mouth. But for some reason, I was drawn to her. Right. I, 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 I wanted to be around her. I would slip into it with her. We would be misery loves company. We mm -hmm. would be miserable together, filled with, you know, youthful angst. Yeah. And when I look at what's happening right now, I wonder if some of this is that yeah. and how maybe we need to sort of self-govern -gov mm -hmm. and say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to get caught up in this. Right. I'm not going to, I'm going to do everything in my power if I feel like I need to do something, but I need to not go down this and spiral into the depths of the cynicism. Right. Because I think innately we are made for dreaming. Right. And hope. Right. And we're not being true to ourselves if we're allowing the cynicism and despair to overcome right. the hope. That's what I, I couldn't put it any better. This is why you should run for office. But um, <laughs> I don't, I'm not the first person to ask you that. But I think there's uh, at our best, we aspire. Right. But at our worst, we kind of become reclusive. I mean, you think about it evolutionarily speaking, if we're getting philosophical and therapeutic about it. You know, we are conditioned to avert or, or turn our gaze towards negative stimuli for survival reasons. Like if you don't pay attention to negativity, you might die, right? 
Um, so we're used to that, that negativity. That's why, like, in the media, uh, even with me on social media, if I post something positive, a few people like it. If it's negative, a lot of people like yeah. it. We're addicted to negativity. When I say the word fuck, oh, yeah. it literally gets triple the retweets. Totally. I, I bet you people will rewind this podcast and just play the fuck part over yeah. and over yeah. and miss the other parts. But it really, it is, you know, we're going to impeach the motherfucker. It gets news, right? Um, this idea of unity, it doesn't, it's not sexy, right? They, people want something that's more prickly and less sparkly, right? And Where are you on impeachment, by the way? Me personally, I think um, I think that the members of Congress there have access to information that we don't. Um, I think if they have all the information they have, if I was in Congress and I had all the information and people said it's grounds for impeachment, I would probably be in that direction on principle. But I don't think that's how we beat Trump. I think we beat him at the ballot. And uh, politically speaking, I think it actually could hurt us. I think, principally speaking, if it's the direction that we've, after accumulating the information, we have to just do what's right. Um, but putting my political cap on, like others have, I think impeaching Trump emboldens him. And the last time we tried to impeach somebody, they actually get, got more favorable, right? President Bill Clinton. So Yeah, his approval rating yeah, went up by He got more points. respect by the world and everybody else than before the impeachment process. So if our goal is to um, hold... Trump accountable, beat him at the ballot, fair and square, right? We've tried for two years to do these kinds of things of impeachment and stuff. So I fall on the lines of let's let's give people an alternative, right? And, and don't compare whoever ends up being the nominee. Don't compare them to the almighty. Compare them to the alternative, right? Mm. We're not going to mm. be happy, all of us, with everything someone does all the time. I'm not perfect, and uh, no one is. But I, I think all of us running for office and everyone who's running for president is far better than the alternative. And so I think we need to just communicate that message and not get hung up again. The idea of impeachment is this negative feeling so towards bad. Trump. We are so bad at looking united. Right. We're, and, and I get it. It's because right. we all have, you know, strong ideas and we're passionate right. and, and being a Democrat encourage and, and a liberal and a progressive encourages that kind of critical thinking. But I just wish we were a little better at looking like yeah. we're all together on this. Right. You here's know? the thing. Republicans are all together all the time, but they all look the same. Right. When you have but like they're a, not. They just present themselves right. as they that. They pretend to be. Yes. But in our party, we're so diverse. And that the beauty of it is that we're diverse. We have different opinions. The downside is we're diverse and we have different opinions. Right. Right. So like that's the beauty of the Democratic Party. But it comes with the hard laborers task of bringing people together and finding that common, you know, goal that we have. And right now, unfortunately, it's trying to get rid of Trump, but we should be able to say, let's get back to normal. Let's let people like me who are running for office, who are the gluttons for punishment, let us focus on politics and let us do our job so that you could go about doing your life, doing uh, the great advocacy work that you do or being in movies or being an actress or being a doctor or uh, anything else. Let us do our jobs to free you up and free your mind to do your jobs, to take care of your kids and your family. You, it shouldn't be the obsession of 300 million plus people to focus on every single thing that's happening in politics. That's why there's 435 people in the House whose job it is to represent their people. That's and, right. And that's it. And the rest of you need to enjoy your lives because mm -hmm. life is fleeting. And you only get so much time with your family, with your loved ones to enjoy this life. 
and leave it to the rest of us who are trying to do this work of public service to do our jobs that you sent us to do and let you do your job of raising your family and having a good life. I'm not talking about blind optimism here, the almost willful ignorance that thinks unemployment will go away if we just don't think about it, or health care crisis will solve itself if we just ignore it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something more substantial. It's the hope of slaves sitting around a fire singing freedom songs. The hope of immigrants setting out for distant shores. The hope of a young naval lieutenant bravely patrolling the Mekong Delta. The hope of a mill worker's son who dares to defy the odds. The hope of a skinny kid with a funny name who believes that America has a place for him too. You talk a lot about your mom. Yeah. Hi, uh, mom. <laughs> Hi. Come in at any time. Her name's Abigail. Hi, Abigail. Oh, I love that name. How has your upbringing shaped your political ideology and even just wanting to be in politics? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean... Um, because I'm always curious as to, like, how did you get here? here? Yeah. It's Especially kinda... when you're so young. Thank you. That's not uh, a compliment. Okay, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, no, I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. I mean, for me, I think it's just, um, it's a Forrest Gump type story, to be honest, in a way. My mom raised me on her own. She was a union member now, and she worked odd jobs as a receptionist at a doctor's office. She did everything we could. I didn't know we were broke, um, but she was the mom that would take time off of work, take me to soccer and all that stuff, and she finally came to me one day when I was 15 and she's like, I, we're broke. We don't have money and I can't afford like the internet and food and TV. And I can't afford supplies for you and Kareem, your brother for school. So I need your help. I need you to pitch in. And of course that broke my heart. I didn't know. I saw my mom crying Mm. over a stack of bills and she was playing this game of solitaire of like, which bills is she going to hide from herself and not pay this month? And I never saw my mom cry. We've been through a lot together um, in war zones and all kind of divorce and all this stuff. And I've never seen her cry except for this moment. And so I took a job at the age of 15 to work as a janitor, um, you know, cleaning shit and all that stuff. And then I worked as a handyman and a groundskeeper. And I learned the dignity of a good day's work um, at an early age. And my mom taught me, like, if you had faith and you worked hard, you could achieve your dreams. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was one of those kids who, like, liked Metallica and was a rebel trying mm-hmm. to find myself and all this stuff. And um, and then I, you know, got to go to community college because I didn't make good grades to go to a good university in the beginning. But I had a great community college education. I transferred to San Diego State. And I was going to graduate. My family's like, oh, my God, this kid's going to actually pull it off and finish school then I took a year off to work for Obama and my parents were like what are you doing and I just really believed in the skinny brown guy with a funny name because I could relate Mm. to him whose dad was absent whose mom uh, raised him on his own and the world projected onto him the identity of the parent he knew the least same thing with me you know when we had the primary you had just 17 percent of the vote Duncan Hunter over 48 percent since then the polls have tightened we're down to the last 24 hours what is that message you want to get out to voters in these last few hours I think the message that we and all of us want to give voters 
is we want to put country over party, not our wife under a bus. We want to put our interests above the special interests in Washington. And in one day, we could take this seat back from the Hunter family for 40 years and not give it to me, but give it back to all of you, the voters in our district. What will you do for the people of this district? You know, the things I want to work on are things like apprenticeship programs. I'm willing to work with the president on things that, that matter to our district, whether it's infrastructure reform, jobs, um, or fair trade. And I'll oppose the president when we need to, like the tariffs that are hurting my district. I want to deliver for the people in my district. I'm not beholden to Nancy Pelosi or Trump, the Democrats or the Republicans. I'm beholden to the 750,000 people who call my district home. And if I'm so honored to, to serve this district, I'll be voting and working for everybody in my district. And when I'm in, in Congress, I won't just be voting for the ones who voted for me. I'll be voting for everyone in my district for their health care, for their jobs, immigration reform, everything that we care about. It's time that we have someone who puts the 50th first. We've seen a lot of young voters coming out in this election. In these last 24 hours, what is your plan now to try and reach these last few people? The, you know, there's a sense of urgency. We're turning out young people, people of color, lifelong Democrats, and even Trump voters who voted for Obama in 08 and Trump in 2016. They're not all ignorant. They're ignored by my party, their party, and the country. And I'm telling people we have to have a sense of urgency. We have to fight for tomorrow today because my generation will face the worst climate climate change, soul-crushing debt that we inherit from trillion-dollar deficits from our federal government, education system that won't lead to good-paying jobs, not because of immigration, but because of automation. We have to fight for tomorrow, today. we got to make sure that my generation is working so that their generation has the Medicare and Social Security that they need when they retire. disorienting situation you have to figure out who you are and for me my faith is a big part of it I know a lot of people don't like talking about faith in a political setting but I think who I am is a measure of whose I am and I found a lot of groundedness in my faith as a Christian um, and also in this community movement of the Obama campaign and then I had applied to work at the White House twice before working for Obama and I what got rejected I studied psychology, political science, and philosophy. So, like, the three Ps, and my parents were like, go be an engineer, like, typical like right. immigrant family. Go do something that creates money. And I just was passionate, trying to understand, like, my life, the world within, and the world outside of me, and how to make sense of it. Not being Latino enough, or Arab enough, or American enough in this post-9-11 world I found myself in. And then on the third time, I got a phone call from the White House, and they said, how'd you like to work at the White House? And I laughed, like any East County kid from San Diego would, and hung up. And then they called me back, and it was real. It was surreal. And then there I was at the age of 22 years old. I went to work in the executive office of the president, reading those 10 letters a day the president would, would read. That would Does really... every president do no, that? No. This one doesn't read at all, but President Obama read 10 letters a day. From? American people. Every single day. I read a story about a veteran who said he had to sell his, um, his medals to get his medicine that month. <gasps> And so I, that must have shaped yeah, so much for it, you. And it made me feel like here was President Obama, who's also in his own bubble in the White House, a community organizer bringing community to himself. And that really made me feel like, you know, politics could be a noble endeavor. And then I continued to work, and then I got to work at the U.S. Department of Labor and full circle, helping people like my mom retool and mm -hmm. retrain, helping people like my mom get access to childcare, helping kids who were at-risk youth who were getting in trouble like I was 
go to summer programs and get summer jobs and being able to be to do things for kids who were like me and make sure there are fewer Amar Camp and Najjar struggling in this life. And then I decided when Trump won, you know, I slept like a baby. I cried every two hours. I woke up, went back to bed. <laughs> and then I said, you know what? Obama said, grab a clipboard if you're not happy of how the way the world looks. And so I just jumped in with both feet. I leapt before I looked. And here we are two years later, and we got so close to beating a dynasty. And it just tells me that it's possible. This I was 28 years old at the time, this 30-year-old guy who had, I have no money. We're not wealthy. We don't have any power. We don't have name ID. People don't even know how to say my name. I'm like, just find it on the ballot. It's the longest one. It's a Mark Camp in a Jar. <laughs> just imagine you're camping in a jar, camp in a jar. That's how you remember my name. And we got so damn close. And that gave me a lot of faith. Obviously, it was heartbreaking. But that was the arc of my journey. And I look at people like President Obama, who was talking to the freshman members of Congress. And he said, if I could give you any advice, it's don't get caught up in social media. It's not the end all be all. Don't think you're all that. And number two, find the one issue that you care about the most, that you think might even cost you your race, and run on that. Mm. Have that conviction and believe that the community will lift you up. And the community has always been there for me. So I I believe in in being unapologetic on the things that you care about. And this idea of economic inequality is a personal one for me that spans from my family and the many families I've heard struggling. And I think if you could just fix that one issue – you could begin to fix a lot of issues. Now, there's a lot of other issues that you have to fix that don't get fixed by fixing income inequality. But for me, I think giving people the opportunity to take responsibility, that transaction. If you take responsibility for your life, you get educated, you get trained, uh, you pay your taxes, you avoid breaking the law like Duncan Hunter, then you're given opportunity to pursue your dreams. That includes people who aren't Americans yet, aspiring Americans who love this country because it's the only country they know. And... Um, you know, my my campaign manager is a dreamer, and her life's on the line here. So this isn't theatrics. For a lot of us, it's it's everything. And so that's why I'm running again. And it's so what it, Wait, so, okay, so it's everything. It's, it's, it's life. Right. Um, so what does it feel like to lose an election when so much of, of your personal fulfillment is wrapped up in yeah. the outcome of something. It was hard. And everywhere I went, I'd go to people and be like, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Like, I'd be walking somewhere. And what somewhere, did they say? Nothing. And some people said that you're too good for the district. I'm like, no, I think people voted their values, but not enough of them got to hear mine. Mm. And that's what I think happened. Um, I know these people. And uh, I know what scares them. I know what lifts them up. And they were scared from they were scared of voting for change after forty years of one name. So, I think I needed just more time. I need I had two years to take on forty years of a dynasty. If I have four years, I could probably do it. And um, I'm not going to give up on these people. And I go to member to, to people who are like, I voted for for Hunter. And I'm like, that's fine because when I'm elected, I'm going to be voting for you. The reason I'm running is for all of you the people who helped raise me, the educators who taught me. You all have been fighting the good fight longer than I've been alive so I could be on the stage. And people like Josh, who fought the wars we wage abroad so someone like me could even have the freedom to fight the wars we wage within, from income inequality, from healthcare, everything else that I've been fighting for in Washington for the past five years. And I've come back every single month to talk to you, to listen to you, to hear about what's waking you up every morning, what keeps you up at night. I know I can make you proud in Washington because I think I have. 
And if you take a chance on me, I'll never give up on you. I'll never stop fighting for you. Because before I was able to do any of that, you went first. You were fighting for equal opportunities for people like me. And I know we live in trying times. I know a lot of us want to come back moment after what happened in 2016. I know a lot of us are worried about the future. I've talked to people who've said, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I'm a illness away from losing my home. I talked to a veteran who said he had to sell his most precious belongings just to get medicine this month. A mother who said, I work two jobs and I never see my kids until I kiss them goodnight. And she didn't say it, but she looked at me in the eyes and said, with eyes that said, am I gonna be okay? We deserve better, and we are better than Duncan Hunter. That's all why we're here. And I know I could bring national pride to this district and not bring national shame. That's why I'm running. If you fight for me, you better believe I'm gonna fight like hell for all of you. Earlier in this episode, we played a clip from Barack Obama's 2004 address to the Democratic National Convention in Boston. It was this speech that introduced him to the nation, and it was a remarkable speech. In it, the future president talked about his family's journey across continents and across classes. It was a personal and compelling tale of the American dream. In the speech, he also talked about what it means to be an American. After quoting from the Declaration of Independence, he said, That is the true genius of America, a faith in simple dreams and insistence on small miracles, that we can tuck in our children at night and know that they are fed and clothed and safe from harm, that we can say what we think, write what we think, without hearing a sudden knock on the door, that we can have an idea and start our own business without paying a bribe, that we can participate in the political process without fear of retribution, and that our votes will be counted at least most of the time. I mean, back then, 15 years ago, it was true for most of us. The new Patriot Act made it less true for Muslim Americans, and it has always been less true for people of color. But today, under the autocratic and dangerous policies of the Trump regime, it is less true for all of us. We can no longer say what we think without retribution. We can no longer aid nations around the world without demanding bribes. We can no longer be certain our children are safe when we chuck them in, or fed, or that our votes will be counted, especially if we're not white. Trump is trying to redefine what it means to be an American. We cannot let him. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women and everyone else are created equal, that we are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. No president can be allowed to change this, nor any cowardly Congress who puts party over the people. The 2020 election is less than a year away. Now is the time to make sure you are registered to vote, check, 
and double check. Make your friends and family do the same. Find out what you need for an ID and make sure you have it. Find out where your polling place is and demand your local government has enough functioning voting machines for every and every and every and every precinct. Be loud. Because the other part of being an American, the part President Obama forgot to mention in that powerful speech, is that every four years we get to have a revolution. That the government works for we the people, not the other way around. And we decide what it means to be an American. Get ready. Game on. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs and music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not Sorry.